0: Once again, I want to personally welcome you to the church. Uh, If you missed it the first time, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here at Mercer Island Covenant Church. And uh, today we are in the first Sunday in Advent, which simply means coming. That does not just reference the fact that Jesus came, but that he is coming again. And I had originally scheduled uh, myself to preach on a topic called uh, justice and the gospel as part of our gospel series. Uh, but uh, about, about a week and a half ago, I really f- uh, felt that this was actually the topic I was to speak on today. And the topic I want to address is the topic of acceptance. Now, for me, the coming of Christ represents the symbolic event of the embrace of humanity. It's God drawing near. And having drawn near once, he's not uh, repelled by us. He's not repulsed. But he's coming again. It's this full acceptance of me. God cares. He loves and he's going to draw nigh. And that's what Advent is for me in in many different ways. And as I began to think about this idea of acceptance and started writing this sermon, I want to tell you that I really wrestled with the content of this sermon. It was a personal struggle for me to dive into this topic. As part of my research, uh, I uh, started reading this book called Shame the power of caring, and it really knocked my socks off. And it was pretty hard for me to differentiate myself and my own story and my own personal issues from the content of the sermon. And I think that's where most of the wrestling came from. And uh, to to be totally upfront with you, I feel so just thick right in the middle of it. And I am still wrestling with the uh, profundity of the truths that I was wrestling with over the last uh, week and a half. Uh, I want to share with you uh, this idea of acceptance from the angle of shame. Now, uh, shame, according to uh, you know all the uh, research that I did, really is a very large topic. And uh, the book that I referenced earlier called Shame, the Power of Caring, it's by a man named Gershon Kaufman. He studied in Columbia University and in Rochester University and now is the professor at the enemy of my alma mater, uh, Michigan State. Um, And so I really don't care to embrace what he has to say, but it gripped me. And uh, he is uh, the premier sort of uh, student of this idea of shame. And his book, uh, by that title, is the groundbreaking work on this idea of shame. I think for the most part, Westerners have uh, uh, ignored this idea for the large part. But what uh, Kaufman argues is that shame is actually one of the most basic driving forces of humanity, human relationships, the self, and how we relate to the self, how the self pre- is presented to the world, and how the world receives or rejects the self. Now, it was, it was just sort of, um, you know, um, there's this idea that there's four essences to the world there is like wind and fire and water and air and uh, some philosophers believe that there's a fifth element that would explain all the other elements and this element is called uh, the quintessence and so when we say something is the quintessential we're talking about sort of the unifying theory of the universe and i think i had sort of a quintessential moment uh, with this idea of shame that shame really is a large topic that explains most things in life. And I begin with this because the passage that was read for us, the story, some of you have read it many times before, have heard many sermons on this topic, have done Bible studies on it. Some of you have, may have never uh, understood that story within the framework of shame and acceptance. But I I think if you don't understand it from that perspective, you really are missing the point of the story. And so um, I want to spend a couple of minutes framing this topic of shame and acceptance so that we can better understand uh, the story. Now, Kaufman, in his book Shame, basically uh, says that we all have needs. True? True. I have needs. You have needs. And if we find the courage enough, or if we have enough trust in somebody, we begin to communicate and present this need to somebody. Right? And so that's us making ourselves vulnerable, making, uh, creating an opportunity for the other to meet a need. Now, if we experience an ignoring or a rejection of this need that we just presented, we experience what he calls shame and shame is a feeling of illegitimacy a feeling that we are bad and therefore our needs are illegitimate because our needs were bad they don't deserve to be looked at they don't deserve to be seen they don't deserve to be responded to they deserve to be ignored and that's why our needs weren't met. We shift immediately from having our needs ignored to our self being ignored, to our needs being illegitimate, to our self being illegitimate. And then as that feeling begins to sour and fester in us, and this festering and souring happens in a fraction of a second, we begin to feel a sense of anger. Or what Kaufman calls rage. And then we become filled with feelings and thoughts of rebellion. And now Kaufman doesn't say this, but it really fit in with my understanding of what sin is. My working definition of sin is finding illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. When you have a legitimate need, but it's not met, and you feel anger about that because you are feeling shame about that, then you begin to have a rebellious spirit, and now you want to find any way to meet this need so that you can begin to feel validated or legitimate. I hope you're tracking with me, right? The flip side of that experience is that we have a need and that need is presented before somebody that we trust and that need is acknowledged, it's honored, it's legitimized, right? And we experience that experience of being made legitimate as acceptance. We are being embraced. Our needs are being met. It's when God looks down on us. He sees the plight of humanity. He doesn't say, well, forget that. He says, no, 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 no. I'm actually going to enter into the chaos and to the mess and to the pain, to the confusion. I will suffer. That's next week. I will suffer with my people. I will not reject them. Scripture says you were once a rejected people of God, but now you are no longer rejected, but you are accepted. So He comes to save us, and He will come again to save us. This is Advent. This is why Advent is in large part about acceptance. And once we experience legitimacy, this acceptance then that overflow spills over not into anger and rebellion, but into what the scriptures call worship or self-giving. That once the self is accepted, it frees us up from the self. So we are no longer caught in uh, self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction and self-esteem. We don't have to esteem ourselves. We are esteemed already. So it overflows into self-giving. We're able to be attentive to the hopes, needs, wants, and dreams of other people. And that's what scriptures call worship. The giving of ourselves. That's Romans 12. Right? To be a living sacrifice. To give of our very selves as the greatest gift that we can offer anyone, including God. Now, the scope of this acceptance, rejection, uh, shame cycle is really vast, as I mentioned. And it can explain things like world wars and the music industry and education and self-help and fashion and politics and sexual identity and sexual politics. It's a really deep all-pervasive way to understand life. And some would argue that shame is perhaps the currency of life and that acceptance is maybe the essence of love itself, that love experienced on a human level feels like acceptance, looks like acceptance. Let me uh, quote from the book Shame. Shame to define shame for us. And he actually says there is no real definition for shame. He really struggles with how to define it. Um, But here's a description of it. Shame is to feel shame is to feel seen in a painfully diminished sense, to feel exposed to both itself and to anyone else present. It is this sudden, unexpected feeling of exposure and accompanying self-consciousness that characterize the essential nature of the effect of shame. Contained in the experience of shame is the piercing awareness of ourselves as fundamentally deficient in some vital way as a human being. That's a mouthful, isn't it? If you have a phone take a picture of that screen so you can read it later he goes on to say that it is difficult to understand shame it is difficult to talk about shame because shame by its very nature causes us to experience shame about our shame that we are ashamed of our shame. And he also says that different cultures are equally plagued with shame because of shame's close association with inferiority. That it takes nothing for us to feel less than the person sitting next to us who are simultaneously feeling less than us. But we can't ever know that because we can't talk about shame because we feel shame about shame. So here we are in our own silos, in our own cone of silence about shame, assuming very sincerely that we are less than, the very people who feel less than. You do the math on that one. That does not itself lead to life and salvation. Now, I think if I give you a pretty uh, standard example of how shame is uh, experienced by a child, I think that will kind of be a light bulb moment. It was for me. Um, For example, a child may come to a dad and say, Dad, 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 I need you right now. I need you right now. And the dad will, without even looking up, because he's preoccupied, and this is not me, this is probably other dad somewhere. <laughs> he's preoccupied with, um, you know, some uh, self-interest that he's engrossed in, without even looking up, says, can't you see I'm busy? And puts up a hand just to uh, visually block himself off into, in, his, in his world, that he, in his own world that he was sucked into. Right, And the child immediately experiences a, sense of, experiences a sense of rejection. You could imagine that. Now, this feeling of rejection of the need immediately changes to feel like a rejection of the self. This need of mine is illegitimate. Therefore, I am illegitimate. I must be bad. That's why my dad won't look my way. My dad won't meet my need. Now, the child isn't processing this in terms of articulation, but the neurons are firing, right? And the consciousness is battling this battle, okay? So the child goes off into their uh, room, closes the door, and is sort of engaging in what I would call sulking behavior, right? Let's say 15 minutes later, uh, the father realizes that he may have been insensitive, goes to the child's room, peeks his head in, maybe even sits down next to the child and says, Honey, were you uh, needing something before? I'm sorry, I was busy. And the child doesn't say, Oh, Dad, I'm so glad you repented and you, you came. No, the child says, No, I'm fine. Right? The child is already in self-preservation mode because the child has already made you know, him or herself vulnerable before, doesn't want to risk that again. And so this feeling of rejection turned into a feeling of badness about the self, which has now turned into anger. And the child, psychologists will tell us, is now more prone to engage in rebellious behavior, starts acting out in some way, shape, or form. That's shame. And that repeats itself all day, every day, for the rest of our lives, not just between parent and child, but between husband and spouse, between manager and employee, between pastor and parishioner, between friends, between siblings, between cashier and customer between doctor and patient, between educator and student, and it just goes on and on and on. And so this leads to what I think scriptures call sin, illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs, and sin itself becomes what I would, and others would call an addiction, which is a dependence on coping mechanisms for Traditionally, it's pain, but I think maybe a deeper word is shame. And so this explains the economy of dysfunctional family systems, sexual abuse, addictions, aging and disability, school and work life, culture and gender, sexual orientation and phobias, identity, relationships, war, international relations. And the list goes on and on and on. Maybe a quintessential unifying theory of the universe. Now, what does this, all this have to do with our text? Now, it's amazing to me that Jesus can have uh, just a moment's uh, worth of interaction with this woman, and she is saved. And she is turned around, and her life is changed forever. And I imagine somebody like Kaufman, who's a psychotherapist, um, engaging her, in her with her problems. And he would have to spend, I don't know, maybe 36 sessions at $120 a pop. And here Jesus does it in a flash. But I think Jesus is addressing this idea of shame and acceptance here in this story. Just a couple of things I want to point out. First, thirst. And second, worship. Okay? First, thirst. This woman has spent her whole life trying to quench her thirst for acceptance. Okay? She was born rejected. She's a Samaritan. What that means is that she is what uh, the Jews of her time would have called a half-breed. She was uh, partially Jewish, but she, according to the Jews, had sold out, and she had intermarried with Gentiles, but tried to maintain that the fact that they are still part of God's chosen people, but God's chosen people have rejected them. So they were despised, they were avoided, they were actively hated, Right? And so she is born as a Samaritan, but she is also born as a woman. What that means is that she is property. She has no rights. And she is tossed to and fro at the will of men, whether they be good or evil. So here she is, rejected, despised, illegitimate. She is born into a framework, context of shame, and it was the norm, it was the rule, in fact, that no males talk to females in public in broad daylight, let alone a Samaritan woman. Jesus was in, was, in fact, not supposed to ever set his feet on Samaritan soil. And if you look at the map of his journey, you see he went out of his way. To go through Samaria. He did not have to go through Samaria. Though the scriptures say he had to, we have to ask why did he have to? Right? And so here Jesus is doing this shocking and unexpected. In fact, this this act on Jesus' part is so shocking and unexpected and so countercultural that his disciples in the end of the story are left speechless. They're left just sort of taking stabs at his motives. What are you, what, what, what's your real ulterior, what, what's really going on here, Jesus? What do you want? Why are you doing this? This is the question that the disciples have. And he, I think this is um, just beautiful, he presents his own need before her to begin the conversation. He says, woman, I see you, and I'm acknowledging you, I'm relating to you. And I want to legitimize you by presenting a legitimate need of mine before you. I'm thirsty. Would you draw some water? I'm not supposed to talk to you. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to receive water from you. But who cares about the supposed There There's so many supposed to's in life. My therapist used to have a sign on his Back, he had two signs. One said, Lord, please make me the person my dog thinks I am. And the other one said, don't you should on me. (laughs) So many shoulds. And Jesus ignores a bunch of them here. Presents a need before her. And uh, the conversation goes on. If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask him to. Give you living water. Well, sir, give me this water. How do you have water? Are you greater than Jacob, our father who, who built this well himself? And so she's, her mind is going that way, and this conversation happening. And finally, she says, okay, you've talked me into it. Give me this water. And then in verse 16, this is the key turning point verse here in this story. Jesus says, go call your husband." And it seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? He's changing the topic. That's not what's happening. Here's what's happening. Jesus is grabbing the corner of her mask and he's ripping it right off. Here's a cultural insight that, that you need to understand what's going on here. Women were considered property, children, slaves. They were not, not There was no legal or social or religious way for a female or for a wife to initiate divorce. That was absolutely impossible. There's no female that can initiate divorce. What does that mean? If he says, go call your husband. He's beginning to communicate to her that he knows her. He knows her story. He's read her mail. Right? I have no husband. That's right. You've in fact had five husbands. And the man that you are now with, he's not your husband. What does that mean? If she's not allowed to initiate divorce, it means that she has been divorced five times. Rejected five times used and thrown away five times. And we don't know what her offense was. It was actually the, the law that if a, a wife appeared before her husband in the morning and her appearance wasn't pleasing to her, he can just say the words, I divorce you, three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and they were divorced. And that was sufficient grounds for divorce. Another Rule was, if she burnt his breakfast, he was allowed to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and the marriage is done. She's sent out, kicked out of his home. She has lived a life of rejection, of pain, of illegitimacy, of abuse, and really at the heart of it, shame. And here Jesus rips her mask off and says, love is not blind. Love does not see less, it sees more. I love you, not because I don't know you, not because I don't know your story, but because I know your story. I know all of you, therefore I love you, I understand you, I know your pain, I know the place you come from. And I will meet you exactly where you are at. And I've mentioned this before. The key to love is not how much God loves us. Because the quantity does not change. He will not love us less. He cannot love us more. But it's when God loved us. And if God loved us then, the argument of Paul goes, how much more will he love us now? And so if Jesus loves her now, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the context of her whole story, he will never love her less. She can trust this love. She can count on this love. She can't disappoint him. She can't surprise him. She can't offend him away. She doesn't have to earn his love She doesn't have to sustain his love. He loves. This is his absolute disposition towards her. He is for her. Refuses to judge her. And you realize Christ had been setting up uh, this moment, setting her up for this moment. Verse 10, he says, If you only knew who it is that you are talking with, you would have asked me for water. All this thirst you've felt your whole life. Second, worship. Kaufman, in his book, he says, at the core of what we feel as shame is a fear of abandonment. That we have these trusted individuals in our lives to whom we present ourselves and our needs on a regular basis. And when that trust is broken, when that need is not met, then we feel not just a badness about ourselves, but a breaking of what he calls interpersonal bonds. We feel that the relationship is broken. And I think this is the pain of judgment. When somebody judges me, when somebody sort of just casts me aside with a label, I feel that sting of judgment, but it's not really the badness of the label. That's not really what it is. But it really is the fear of abandonment. I don't want that relationship to be affected by whatever judgment was just passed over me. I fear that that category I was put in will somehow take away from their connectivity to me. That somehow they will want me less. They will be less of a friend to me. It's this very basic fear of abandonment. And this is what shame is. He goes on to say, that shame is something that begins on a relational plane, that I fear the end of this relationship. I feel a lessening of this relationship. But at some point, if we experience enough and regular shame, what happens is the shame becomes internalized. Then I just carry it with me. And even uneventful situations can trigger these feelings of shame that you can be meeting my needs, but somehow I'm reading rejection into it because now I have all the uh, uh, resources for shame that I need within myself. I'm just a shameful person. But it begins on a relational level. Now this is where Jesus comes into play for me on a personal level. I was hanging out with my kids last night, and it was a lot of fun. It was intense. We watched together as a family the movie Brave. And, uh, you know, it's a movie about your destiny. It's a movie really about a daughter working out her issues with her mom. And, uh, you know, good, good, good family movie. Um, and after the movie, there was sort of a high in the room, and we were wrestling and hugging and just... A lot of just interplay, and the and the kids just vying for our attention, and uh, dancing, and singing, and grabbing, and tugging, and just it was it was an intense, you know, maybe forty minutes, right? And I realized in the midst of that uh, frantic giving and receiving of love, of acceptance, of de-shaming one another, I realized that. I'm going to fail. And even as we were having so much fun, I was failing. There are four of them and just one of me. I remember a time when I'd be able to hold all four kids, pick them up, and walk. I can't do that anymore. You realize as a dad I'm going to fail? That I am going to not be able to meet every need that is presented before me, that I shame my wife on a daily basis, that she presents needs before me and I fail. I can't meet all of her needs because half her needs are unspoken and it's my job apparently to read her mind. As a pastor, I feel like I fail every day. Do you know this? It is hard to be a pastor. I don't know how to love. I can't. We have come to a place now, it's been three months that I've been here, where it's been too long for me to ask you what your name is now. God bless name tags. And I will fail you, continue to fail you as a citizen, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, as an employee, as a supervisor, as a mentor. I will fail. And here's the conclusion that I have drawn for myself. That every need precedes me. It was there before I got there. Every need precedes supersedes me it's more than i can meet and every need succeeds me it will persist after i'm gone you will fail and your life will be a story of shaming people and feeling ashamed about that what do you do You notice how this conversation immediately turns to worship? This is a strange thing. There are just sort of two non-sequiturs in this story. One moment, they're talking about water. Then all of a sudden, we're talking about husbands. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about worship. Somehow, water, husbands, and worship are all the same thing. I realize because of the inevitability of failure, my job is not to meet all of the needs that are presented before me, but it is to point them to God. Because shame at its basest form is relational. We are born into this world as orphans, feeling the shame and rejection That only orphans can feel. We are born into this world disconnected from our Creator, our Father. We are born without a lover for our souls. We are born without one who knows us, who sees us, who cares for us. We are born into this world as enemies, as ungodly, as sinners. We are born disconnected. We are born isolated. And so the economy of the world turns. But the world is insufficient. You are insufficient. I am insufficient. Our most basic fundamental need for acceptance doesn't come from each other, but from God and God alone. Hence the turning of the conversation to worship. The greatest form of acceptance we need is not from human beings but it is from God. Our most fundamental relationship is with God. And here is what Jesus is saying when he rips her mask off. And this is why the conversation turns to worship. Jesus is saying this. Self-acceptance is a myth. It's elusive. You will never, ever pin it down. Accepting others is a myth. You will never ever be able to accept each other. And receiving acceptance from others is a myth. It will never ever happen. There is no such thing as acceptance here on earth because our world is conditional. Anytime you think you've experienced acceptance, they have accepted some basic standard that you have met by which they are accepting you. That means they're not accepting you. They're accepting their own standards. And even self-acceptance. You're not accepting yourself. You are accepting some basic standard by which you have determined yourself to be acceptable. But it's like walking into a court of law and saying, I'm innocent. Who cares? Your voice has no authority. It's the judge And the judge's opinion, that matters. And so Jesus is saying, Sweetheart, all this acceptance you've been seeking to cover up your shame, that thirst, that thirst is not for man. There's no husband good enough for that. And all the wives said, Amen. That thirst can only be satisfied by me. It's my acceptance that you are looking for. And so our job and what it means to be a Christian is to say, I am not going to search for self-acceptance or acceptance of others anymore. I will accept God's acceptance over me. Who cares if I, I accept me? Who cares if I esteem me? There's no power or authority in that. God, who is my maker, who is the lone authority figure, he accepts me. Everybody else's opinion is invalid. Apostle Paul has a beautiful way of putting this. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, to the corinthians so for me now they were judging him they were harsh with him and he says so for me it is a minor matter that i am judged by you or by any human court in fact i do not even judge myself the one who judges me is the lord you hear what paul is saying he's saying i don't care what you think about me in fact i don't even care what i think about me I only care what God thinks about me. Then he goes on to say in Romans, Who are you to pass judgment on another servant? Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Jesus saying to the woman, Sweetheart, lift up your head. I am the lifter of your head. So Hebrews 4.16 says, boldly approach God's throne of grace. Come, you are accepted. And there, there in the throne, just as you are, there you will find the grace and mercy to help you in time of trouble. Acceptance is the door through which transformation happens. Here we are so busy shaming each other because we think that's the only tool we have to get other people to change. The one tool we have in our bag is to shame each other, manipulate each other. And God comes and says, no, actually, that doesn't work at all. Now, just a few points of application, and then we'll call it a sermon. I want to invite you to begin to be unashamed of shame. And so what I want to suggest that some of you might want to do is you might want to share, begin sharing with someone some stories from your life or what Kaufman calls scenes. There are certain scenes that play over and over and over again that have been an experience of sudden exposure. We experience the stark reality of our deficiency as human beings maybe a mom incident, a dad incident, a friend this incident. Some memory or scene that's within you. Find somebody over the next couple of weeks and say, hey, do you mind if we have coffee? I want to share something with you. Take an intentional step towards that and as part of that, you may in fact want to begin to um, have times of confession, moments of confession with somebody that you have shamed. I um almost cried i almost you know i love my wife so much i almost told her yesterday Um, (laughs) i hugged her and i said honey this sermon is rocking my world and i said i've been shaming you so much i'm so sorry about that and she said yeah you have And I said, you know, I've been trying to think about this. I don't think you've ever shamed me even once. She said, you know, actually, I don't think my parents ever shamed me either. So this one is all on me. And I confess that to you so it gives you courage maybe to do that with somebody else. Second, I want to invite you to buy the book and read it. It is so good. It's so good. And it is the groundbreaking work on this topic of shame. And I think once you begin to read it, you'll agree with me that it might be a unifying theory of the universe. Third, I want, I want to invite you to begin to ask what it means for you to accept God's acceptance over you rather than fighting for your own self-acceptance or acceptance of other people. What will you do? The master of all has accepted this fellow servant. Will you not accept this servant? Their master has accepted them. And furthermore, he has accepted you. What will you do with that? How will that be applied in ways that you are able to release yourself, ways that you're able to forgive self and others? And then lastly, I want to invite you today to experience communion as God's word of acceptance over you. Jesus came to be rejected by man so that you might experience his acceptance over you, that you might experience Jesus saying, Sweetheart, lift up your head. We're going to be doing a couple of things differently today for communion. Uh, we have um, Hawaiian bread. It's nice and absorbent, and it's going to uh, do well uh, for the ways that we serve communion at our church. We, we practice an old 5th century method uh, called uh, intinction. And what that means is that you're going to rip a piece of bread off, and then you're going to dip it into the juice, and um, you're gonna take it to your seat, or gonna, you could go walk off, off to a corner or uh, somewhere where you can have a private moment if you wish and take the elements when you are ready. Uh, we also have some gluten free options available in each, uh, in the far corners of the room, if that's uh, something that you would appreciate. And we also have a floater that's walking around, making sure those of you who feel more comfortable being served communion in your seats can also receive communion in that way. Hear now the words of institution, but hear it today as Jesus' words of acceptance de-shaming over you. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and breaking it, he said this, is my body broken for you and then after the meal he took the cup and he said this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins take and drink and as you do remember me can i invite the ushers to come forward